Calvary Baptist Church podcast, where we share weekly sermons from our church services. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. We are a multi-generational family church located in the heart of Little Rock. Calvary's mission is to glorify God by making disciples who make disciples. Whether you've long been part of our church family or are tuning in for the first time, we hope our podcast provides the same kind of welcoming space you'd find here on Sunday mornings. Most of all, we hope this space helps you engage God's Word and grow in your faith. Today, we are going to be studying the seventh commandment, which is found in Exodus 20, verse 14. And it's another very succinct, concise commandment with no explanation given, probably because no explanation is needed. So here it is. You shall not commit adultery. And adultery can be defined as sexual relations in which at least one participant is married to someone else. And it's typically referred to as one of the great sins against one's neighbor. Well, before we move forward, as we think about such a heavy topic as this is, we know that there are very likely some folks here who have broken this commandment. So I just want to take a moment before we dive into this and just speak to you while the rest of us are listening in. And the first thing I would say is you do not have a scarlet letter A branded on your forehead if you've committed this sin. In fact, that's something we can all celebrate. No scarlet letters here today. You might think, well, lots of people know. Well, probably very few people know. And the ones that do know and uh, that matter love you and have already forgiven you. You need to forgive yourself. So that's the first thing I'd like to say. Secondly, if we look at what Jesus says about this commandment in the Sermon on the Mount, and that's found in Matthew 5. I'm just going to read what he says about it. He says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so what Jesus is teaching here is he's expanding the commandment from literal physical adultery, and he's talking about the spirit of the law. And he says the letter of the law is important, but the spirit of the law is also vitally important. And so the spirit of the law is that if somebody has looked at a woman or we could add a man lustfully, he has committed, he or she has committed adultery in his heart. And so it's also a heart issue. And basically, what that is saying and what Jesus is saying is he's really indicting almost everyone here. If you are of uh, the age of a teenager or older, you are probably guilty of violating this commandment based on the spirit of the law. So what that's saying is that if scarlet letters were to be handed out, we would all be wearing one. Third thing I'd like to say is there's a beautiful story in John chapter 8. 
where a woman who was caught in the act of adultery was brought before Jesus. Now, such a beautiful story because we see how Jesus responded. This woman, no doubt, was set up by the self-righteous, legalistic Pharisees. And they set her up to try to entrap Jesus, to get him to lose some credibility with either the authorities or his followers. And so they brought this woman, drug her before Jesus. It would have been a horribly embarrassing situation for her. She probably was wearing very little, if any, clothes in front of a group of angry, self-righteous men. And it was also a terrifying event for her because these men were planning to kill her. Where was the, the other person involved in the adultery? Where was the man? He wasn't there. They just brought the woman, which shows us this was clearly a setup. Well, they asked Jesus, with her there, they said, you know, the law of Moses allows us to stone this woman for what she has done. What do you say? And that's the passage where Jesus knelt down and wrote something in the sand. We don't know what he was writing. I don't know what he wrote. But we do know when he looked up, he said, all right then, he that is without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. And the result of that is that all of these self-righteous Pharisees, one by one, began to drop their stones, their rocks, and walk away. And when they'd all left, Jesus looks at the woman and she, he says, where are your accusers? Is there no one here to condemn you? And she said, no one, sir. And he said, neither do I condemn you. So now go and leave your life of sin. And so it's a, it's a beautiful passage that where we see the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it was a heart of love. It was a heart of forgiveness, not condemnation. But it also was a heart that was not condoning what she had done. Go and leave your life of sin. And that's what Jesus expects for all of us here today, with whatever sin it might be that we are entangled in. He's not here to condemn us. He wants to forgive us. He expects us to repent and leave our life of sin. When that happens, we can receive all of the goodness, all of the grace, all of the love, all of the kind of the reboot, the new start, the new beginning, all of those things that we can celebrate in Christ. So, I think that just needs to be said up front. And all of us here uh, just need to pay close attention to uh, the grace that is involved. But, remember, Jesus didn't condemn, but he also didn't condone. Why is adultery such a bad sin. Why is adultery so bad? Well, I think adultery is so bad because marriage and sex and family are so good. And adultery literally assaults all three of those. It assaults marriage, 
Often marriages don't make it after one of the spouses commits adultery. It's an assault on the intimacy of sexual relations. A lot of trust is broken, and that relationship between a husband and wife is greatly damaged, sometimes irreparably. And it's an assault on the family. Because it's not just those who are involved that are affected, and not just the spouses who might be a victim of adultery, but it's also the children and the extended family, parents, in-laws. It's very, very damaging to all of those relationships. So adultery is so bad because these things, marriage, sex, and family, are so good. How do we know marriage, sex, and family are so good? Well, let's just take a quick moment and look at where we see God instituting marriage in Scripture. It's in Genesis chapter 2. And in Genesis 2, beginning in verse 18 and following, we see when God brought this beautiful gift, these beautiful gifts, into fruition, into place. Verse 18 of Genesis 2, The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Then we jump down to the end of verse 20. It says, But for Adam no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So this is where we read about God instituting marriage and all of the blessings that were intended and are intended to come with marriage. Verse 18, it says it's not good for man to be alone. Marriage, in marriage, God gives the gift of companionship or friendship. That's one of the beautiful gifts that he was wanting to give. Secondly, we say, it says that uh, man needed a helper. There was no suitable helper for him, and so God gave him a wife. So marriage is intended for husbands and wives to be helpmates of one another. We need help, and God has provided help through our spouses. We also know, if you come to the end of chapter 2, that this is intended, marriage is intended to be a union, which we believe is a sexual union, of course, and even refers to that in verse 25, they were both naked and felt no shame. So part of what God is providing is the gift of sexual intimacy and romantic love. That is part of what God, the gift that God brings through marriage. And ultimately, we also know it's a, a gift of family. Earlier, God had told all of creation to be fruitful and multiply. And so this is a gift where God is blessing husbands and wives with the possibility of children and then even grandchildren. So, adultery is so bad because 
uh, marriage, sex, and family are so good. So some of you might be here and you might be married and you might be saying, well, that's just not been my experience. I'm not really feeling all of the, the goodness that these gifts of marriage were supposed to bring. And I would just say if you're a Christ follower, especially if your spouse is a Christ follower, you need to fight for these gifts. You need to fight for your marriage. Fight for the blessing that God intends for you to have together. And that's going to require probably, if there's been heartache or work, difficulties, it's going to require a lot of spiritual effort. It's going to require prayer. It's going to require obedience to Scriptures like Ephesians 5.21. Ephesians basically just says, submit to one another, talking to husbands and wives, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So out of our love for Christ and our desire to obey Christ and follow Him, we are to submit, meaning we are to place our spouse above ourselves. That's what submit means. And it's for both husbands and wives to place the other first and begin to serve the other. So fight for your marriage. Make the changes you need to make, you can make. Fight for if there's difficulties, if there's been emotional problems or uh, all kinds of mistakes, sin issues. You need to repent. You need to work together. You need to uh, get prayer partners involved. You might need a marriage, Christian marriage counselor to come along. You might need to attend a marriage enrichment retreat based on Christ. There's all kinds of things you can do to fight for your marriage, and you should and you must. Another thing is you need to fight for the romantic love in your marriage. That's a gift. It was intended for mutual fulfillment and pleasure. And so, if you're struggling in that area, fight for it. If it's been emotional issues that have damaged that relationship, deal with them. Talk them through. Pray through them. Talk with them about with a Christian counselor. If it's physical issues, get your doctor involved. But fight for your romantic love and your sexual fulfillment. It's a gift that God has given you to, to each other. And fight for your family. You need to know that your family is worth fighting for. And these areas are certainly in, uh, under attack by our enemy. And so fight for your, your family. Love your family. Uh, help your kids in these areas and so forth. The best thing for your children and your grandchildren is for them to see a very happily married grandparent, parent who is following the Lord, faithfully serving their spouse. You know, we have a story in Scripture that is a surprising story an unexpected story about a very godly person who ends up committing adultery. And it's unexpected because this person actually receives what I think is one of the greatest compliments in all of Scripture. 
And it happened to be a man, and he was described at one point in his life as being a man after God's own heart. And the man that we're talking about is one of the Old Testament heroes of the faith, King David. And David, this man after God's own heart, a passionate worshiper of God, a man who literally wrote half of the Psalms that we have in our Bibles that are both prayers and praises. A man that uh, was known for his uh, being a courageous warrior for God. A man that was called by God to lead the people and led them righteously as God's people ends up succumbing to this sin and he breaks the seventh commandment and commits adultery. You read about this in 2 Samuel chapter 11. How does it happen? How does it happen to such a godly person? Well, as you read that story, we get some clues, I think, in the text. First of all, it says that David sends his army off to battle, but he stays behind in the palace in Jerusalem. That's a signal that something strange is taking place. Something's not quite right, especially for David. But kings just didn't send their armies off in that day and age without their leader, especially a warrior leader like King David. What's going on? We don't really know. We're not told. But something's not quite right. Then we find out that King David is not able to sleep at night. And he gets up and he wanders around the palace. Something is troubling his sleep. Something's off. Don't know what that is. We're not told. It appears that he's also a little bit bored. He goes out on the balcony of his palace that overlooked the city of Jerusalem. And while he's out there in the moonlight, apparently, he sees a woman bathing, likely on her rooftop, and he sees that she is very beautiful. And Mary, uh, David is a married man. But instead of looking away and walking away, he does what Jesus said he was not to do, tells us not to do. He lusts for this woman, and he indulges himself with her beauty. And then he asks about who she was. He has a servant go and find out who she is. The servant comes back and says, O king, this is the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uriah was one of David's soldiers that was off on the battlefield, off serving the king and his kingdom. And I think this messenger was trying to help David, trying to give him kind of a, a, a hint uh, to help him understand it really was a warning. King David, this is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. This is a married woman. But David didn't take the hint. He didn't heed the warning. And instead, asked for the servant to bring Bathsheba to the palace. And she came. And so they have a personal encounter at the palace. 
And we have to then ask, well, what, how, did this, how did this transpire? How did this go from this meeting to adultery? Well, some would say it was entirely King David's fault. And the Scriptures do place certainly most of the blame on King David. But what I think was happening here is you have two very beautiful people coming together. King David was known as a very handsome man. He had a very beautiful woman, we're told, in the Scriptures. And they have come together. They both seem a little lonely. And they both seem a little vulnerable. There's a mutual admiration society taking place here. David was admiring her beauty. No doubt she was admiring her king, her benevolent king. He was absolutely a celebrity superstar of the day. And she had been invited to the king's palace. No doubt she thought that was a great honor. And so when David apparently then expresses his desire for her sexually, I believe she consents. And so we have what I think is a consensual, very move from, uh, in, to a sensual experience, sexual experience. And as the story unfolds, so do the sheets of the king's bed in the palace. And they spend the night together and have sexual relations together. And then probably Bathsheba leaves the palace before the sun comes up because they don't want anybody to know. Again, David is a married man. Bathsheba is a married woman. And it seems like nobody's going to know except maybe the suspicious servant that went and secured her to come. Well, five or six weeks later, Bathsheba informs David that she's pregnant. And so now they have a, a problem, an issue that they need to deal with. And you may know the rest of the story. We talked a little bit about it last week. David then asked for Uriah, her husband, Bathsheba's husband, to come back from the front lines of the battle, give a report to the king personally, and then David, of course, expects him to go home and have relations with his wife so that it would cover up their sin. But Uriah, as you know the story, was too honorable to do that. Refuses to go back and sleep with his wife while his fellow soldiers were on the front lines and unable to be with their wives. And so after several attempts, we find out that David then sends Uriah back to the front lines carrying orders, and in those orders were really uh, instructions for his own death. The commander was supposed to put Uriah on the front lines. Troops were going to retreat unannounced. Uriah would be left alone and it was expected that he would be killed and he was. And it seemed like David had gotten away with murder. But as we talked about last week, God sees all, God knows all, and God responds. And he confronts King David with what he has done. He's committed the two great sins. Adultery, and then, unthinkably, murder. Well, what do we learn from this story? What do we learn about us? 
One is we learn that if it could happen to King David, it could happen to any of us. We learn that when we lose our way, I think something at at its root was the spiritual connection that David had kept so fresh, this passionate uh, pursuit of God, this passionate worship. Somehow he had slipped away from it, from his focus on the Lord and began to focus on himself and he became very, very vulnerable. And so that's, I think, the beginning point. What do we need to do if we are going to avoid the same mistakes that David made? First of all, I think what we need to do is we need to understand that it's vitally important that we guard our hearts in this area. Not only do we need to guard our hearts, but we also need to help our children guard their hearts. What does it mean to guard your heart? Well, I believe there is a a beautiful scripture that we need to understand related to sex in general. And it's found in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. And it basically just says, flee sexual immorality. Flee sexual immorality. This is not the type of sin where we're supposed to kind of muster up self-control and all of the the good qualities we have and fight, stand up and fight against it in the moment. No, we're told to flee this when it presents, the temptation presents itself. There's a story in the Bible in Genesis chapter 39 of another hero of the faith, an Old Testament hero named Joseph. And he too was experiencing a, a time when a very beautiful woman, Potiphar's wife, was trying to seduce him. And the scripture says, Joseph also was a handsome man. But what did Joseph do when that happens? If you read that story, she's coming on to him. He's trying to get away. She actually grabs him and he slips out of his outer robe, his cloak, and he flees. Gets out of Dodge. Gets away from her. Refuses to give in to this temptation, to this sin. David did just the opposite. Instead of fleeing, he indulged himself and he allowed his lust turn into desire and he allowed that desire turn into a personal confrontation where he basically invites Bathsheba into his bedchambers. And then that leads to the unthinkable cover-up that results in not only adultery but murder. This is a very dangerous, slippery slope that people can find themselves on, and it always ends up bad. Always. We have to learn to guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. One of the things we're also told is to help our children guard their hearts. Where do we get that? Well, Proverbs chapter 5 is an entire chapter where a father, a, a, a father of the Jewish people, God's people, is instructing his son, probably a teenage son, about the evils of adultery and how to avoid the adulteress, how to see through her words and her speech and her temptation. 
and how to know that the end result of that is going to be bitter and deadly. You just go back and read Proverbs 5 and see the instructions that a man of God was supposed to give his son in order to help him become a man of God. The point of this is that we are taught in Scripture to confront our children and to help our children in these areas. A lot of us in today's culture say, man, that's just way too awkward. Get involved with a conversation with my teenager about sex or adultery or things related to it. We must. Yeah, it will be awkward with your children or your teenagers or your grandchildren. But we are called to come alongside and help them. You know, as you think about this sin, certainly adultery is at the, the, uh, the high point of, of, of the sin in terms of its destructive consequences. But there's so many other sexual sins involved. Remember, Jesus said, if it involves lust, it's adultery. So this really forbids lots of other sexual sins, like just really sleeping with somebody outside of marriage. Scripture says that's not something we should do. It's not in your best interest or in your best interest as a couple. But we also know it talks about things that would forbid things but in our world like pornography. Pornography is a huge scourge on the church and against the church and against the people of God and really against people in general. Huge scourge. And it's full of lust. And that's what it's capturing. And our children, we have to understand, are under siege. They're being assaulted by pornography in our culture. I worked and was privileged to work with young adult men, college students, and as I was discipling some of them and they got real with me, they would often say that they were exposed to pornography as children and it really messed them up. And that most of their friends were constantly looking at pornography. And many of them grew up thinking it was just normal didn't even know it was wrong until somebody discipling them confronted them with the issue. And what's happening is the enemy is robbing them of the beautiful gifts that God wants them to have. The beautiful gifts uh, of marriage and sexual intimacy in marriage and all of the things that come with that. Satan is taking this beautiful gift of sex and he is distorting it and he is perverting it and he is then lying to us and then he's deceiving us and then ultimately he's robbing us. And what he's doing to us, he's also doing to our children. And so the point is we need to fight for our children as well as for ourselves. If anyone is struggling with pornography, and I know many are, we have some ministries, and a ministry even right here, that can help. There's one called uh, for, for our men, and there's basically, if you, if you are looking for support, a support group to help get yourself out of this trap, 
You can simply email pureminds at cbclr.org. That's our church website, Pure Minds. Now, this is a confidential email. I won't know about it. The staff won't know about it unless you tell us. And it goes to the leader directly of this ministry or the leaders, and then they will respond and they will provide accountability, prayer, resources to help you if you're struggling in this area. If you need to help your children, talk to Garrett. Garrett will provide you with resources. Or talk to Julie, depending on the age of your child or children. Get the resources you need to put accountability and support and help to keep them away from the danger of pornography. We need to pursue purity. That's really the second thing. Pursue purity and help your children pursue purity. I love what Philippians 4.8 says. It says, Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is right, whatever is noble, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, whatever is excellent or praiseworthy, think on these things. And right in the middle of that is purity. God wants us to pursue purity, and it's related to all the others. Purity is noble. Purity is righteous. Purity is excellent. It's praiseworthy. It's what God wants for us to pursue, and we can reclaim it if we've lost it. In any sexual sin, we can reclaim it. And that leads to the last thing. How do we reclaim it? Well, King David actually shows us the way. Psalm 51 is one of the great psalms in our Bible that we know as a confessional psalm. You know what, the, what prompted King David to write Psalm 51? It was his sin with Bathsheba. And so this is his confession, and it really could be used for any confession, But I want us just to look briefly at it as we close. Psalm 51, verses 1 through 3. David starts the psalm by saying, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. David is pouring his heart out to God, confessing his sin. That's where it starts. When you and I fail and we sin, any type of sin, but certainly sexual sin, this is what we've got to do. Go to the Father. Pray what David prayed. Ask Him to cleanse your heart, and He will. The Bible says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a gift. What grace. Reboot, restart, new life, new beginnings. That's what God wants for us any time we sin, but certainly with sexual sin. And then Psalm 51, if we jump down to verse 10 through 13, he says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. David is now praying for restoration. Not just for forgiveness, but to be restored 
That's what sin does, especially sexual sin. It robs us of our intimacy with God. It robs us of our joy. It robs us of our desire to pursue Him. He's asking for all of that back. And God graciously gives it back. And finally, verse 13, he says, then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Basically, he's now wanting to help others that are caught in the same trap that he was caught in. And that's one of the things that if you're here and you've stumbled into this sin of adultery, you now, if you found forgiveness and freedom and repentance and restoration, you now have the opportunity to help somebody else coming behind you that may be struggling with the temptation or maybe is trying to figure out how do they get back on the right path? How do they get forgiveness and restored? You can help them. It's a beautiful passage. And really it's just helping us understand that what we need to do is confess, repent, and then bask in God's grace and forgiveness. And He is a grace-giving God. Thank God He is a grace-giving God. Thank you for listening to the Calvary Baptist Church Podcast. If you don't already have a church home, we invite you to join us in person each Sunday morning. Our contemporary worship service is at 9 a.m. and our traditional service is at 11.15. For more information, be sure to check out our website, cbclr.org.